Hello, and welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. It's unusual to find one, much less two, surgeons who began their private practice straight out of fellowship. On this episode, we're hearing from one of the two doctors in this Frisco, Texas cosmetic practice. Today on the Real Self University podcast, my guest is Dr. Matt Richardson from Frisco, Texas, and he's a facial plastic surgeon there. He's about three years into practice, and I'm super excited to have him joining us to talk about how he's approached this early part of building a practice in a really tough competitive market. And so I'm super glad to have you today, Matt. Will you just give us a little background about Frisco and yourself and and your general state of the world right now? Sure. So um, I grew up in Texas in the Dallas area. So my practice and where I live now, that's home for me and for my wife. And um, so when we started the journey to um, find where we were going to set up long-term and build my practice, you know, there was not really a better place for us than going back home. And um, Dallas-Fort Worth is a great market for cosmetic and aesthetic treatments. And uh, being a facial plastic surgeon who's focused on aesthetic procedures, uh, it was just a nice fit for us. So we uh, traveled to the far north Dallas suburban area, which is where Frisco is located. Frisco is a is a very uh, rapidly growing community, always rated one of the top places to live in the United States, and um, tons of business and economic opportunities growing in that area, home of the Dallas Cowboys, and lots of sports teams for the DFW area are based in Frisco, and PGA of America headquarters is moving to Frisco, and so it's a younger uh, population there, but my practice has sort of grown to evolve to fit that, I think. Um, I do a lot more non-surgical, injectable laser type treatments than I did in my fellowship. And um, I still have a nice population of aging face patients that are, you know, there for facelift and facial rejuvenation. But in general, it's a younger population and the population is growing quite a bit. I expect that uh, population to sort of age with me (laughs) as my career progresses over time. Isn't the most expensive high school football stadium ever built also in Frisco? Uh, The one you're thinking of is probably Allen, Texas, which is nearby, although Frisco high schools do use uh, the Dallas Cowboys facility at the Star. It's called the Ford Center currently. And um, I don't know how much that costs, but it's uh, an expensive indoor stadium for high school football. We are very (laughs) serious about our football in Texas. Yes. That sounds like an exciting place to be, and especially to be kind of starting out in a place that's growing like that. And I, I think that's what Texas is so great for, is that energy and that exuberance around people building things and growing things. So it's exciting that you're right there in Frisco. And I know one of the biggest challenges when you're starting out is finding the money to do marketing and making the right decisions about marketing. And I think more than any other category of starting yourself out successfully, marketing is the hardest one to make good decisions. And so can you tell us a little bit about some of the the wins that you had in the in those early stages and some of the mistakes that you made too? Sure. So I think for me the biggest thing that I had to learn was the cash flow is different at the beginning. So I can sort of accommodate various marketing 
strategies now that I couldn't a few years ago. And uh, that's simply due to a, a cash flow issue when you're starting a new practice. And, um, you know, we tried a whole bunch of different things. And some of those things we still do today, some of them we don't. And um, everything has an ROI, return on investment, right? So some of those things like digital prints, ads in your local community paper or magazine have an ROI. It might not be as high of an ROI as some other methods may have. And um, you have to sort of decide that. And I don't think that's always an easy thing to do because every market and every area is different. And um, some of it is just trial by fire. You have to kind of try it and see see what works and what doesn't. And, and you learn pretty quickly, you know, where your biggest bang for your buck is from a marketing standpoint. For us, it's mostly online. We don't We've dabbled with uh, billboards and print ads and uh, advertising at the gym down the street and um, all different kinds of, of things, even you know doing local events and chamber of commerce and all of those things are good and I like to be involved in the community. But from an ROI perspective, which doesn't always just mean money, it also means time. That can be a challenge, you know, to sort of feel like you're not abandoning the local community and marketing efforts, but still be able to keep your own business alive, which helps your community that way too. So we've really transitioned, streamlined our marketing efforts to move more towards uh, the things that we feel like give us good ROI, which are generally web-based platforms. What was your biggest marketing fail that you can remember? We invested quite a bit of money up front into print ads in a local magazine. And I'm not sure that we received much return, if any, on that in the short term. Did anyone ever come in and say, I saw your print ad? Maybe one or two, you know, one or two people in that first uh, year or so that we did that. And um, you start to look, okay, how much money are you putting every month into that? You're having to create different ads for different things, which involves your, your time or your staff's time. And all of that, you have to say, okay, well, can I put that money into other things, Google AdWords or even boosted social media or real self or whatever it is. There's a lot of different methods out there to you know, look at that. There's a local paper that I get in Austin and there's a, a doctor who bought an ad in that and she must have bought a really long contract because it's been there for years and her name is misspelled oh my. and they, for whatever reason, must not be able to fix it. And I just feel sort of like half embarrassed for her, but half like, <laughs> why Why did you do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, uh, I think, look, uh, you see Coca-Cola ads in magazines, right? So everyone knows what Coca-Cola is, but you know, you got to sort of attack it from a bunch of different ways. There's not one particular way that works best from a marketing standpoint, but there are different ways to allocate your time and your resources to those different channels uh, to sort of get the best uh, return. Tactically speaking, how do you manage it internally between you and your business partner? Do you have a marketing director? Are you still kind of wearing all the hats? How's that Um, working? My practice is a little bit unique. I don't think there's actually a lot of practices like mine out there in that my partner and I started this practice essentially straight out of fellowship without going into any other practices at any point in time before this. So we have the same training and experience. I mean, different residency programs and fellowship programs, but we're both facial plastic surgeons. We do things in many of the same ways. And we started this practice together from the ground up. So we 
have many of the same skills and we use those different things. And when I say skills, I don't just mean surgical skills, but marketing skills or web skills or social media skills, whatever they may be, we use those together. And he and I have different strengths between those to sort of manage our practice. So our practice is still growing. You know, we've been open almost three years now and it's still a small operation, but we continue to add team members. We've added two new team members in the past couple of weeks that are coming on board. So to answer your question in a roundabout way, we continue to manage it for the most part ourselves uh, between the two of us. Do you have a benchmark in mind for when you'll actually hire someone to take the marketing over or do you think you'll hang on to it? for a while? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, One part we have turned over, at least partially, is social media. So for a while, we tried to do that. My spouse helped me with that for a long time, but eventually became sort of too much for us to make it even livable and um, make it even reasonably good. Especially if you don't enjoy doing it. Right, right. And for me, that's the thing is um, social media is not something that I enjoy. I don't just sit at home and flip through Instagram or Facebook. I do it because I think it helps patients find us. It's educational for people and it can be somewhat entertaining for them. For me, it's not really entertainment. It's more about the educational aspect of it. But yes, we've turned over at least the practice side of it. One thing that's unique about our social media platforms is um, we have a practice page and we have our individual doctor pages as well. And that goes for primarily Instagram, which is our main channel. There are pages that are sort of alive, semi-alive on Facebook and Twitter and things like that for the doctor's pages. But for the most part, those are practice pages. And so, you know, we may be generating content for Instagram on three different channels, which um, can be a little difficult to do. It's hard enough to generate good content, you know, one at a time. Is your long-term vision then to have the name of the practice be the brand? It's a good question. You know, one thing we started out doing was we went only with the name of the practice sort of as the brand. And and actually, as time has gone on, we've actually tried to develop our own physician brands a little bit more. And I think that's probably been successful. It's hard for people to connect with a business. It's easier for people to connect with an individual. And that's why we made that change. And I think, you know, we want to maintain both because we definitely have patients that are are really the practice's patient. They're not necessarily mine or his or our estheticians. They come in, facials and laser treatments and Botox or filler or whatever it may be, and they go between the two doctors, they go between our different estheticians and microblading artists and different things. And those are those are practice patients, you know. If the practice dissolved or he or I left, I think that patient might stay with the practice. And if the practice were gone, I think they might be gone. Um, so, I know from working with doctors at every stage of their career from the marketing side that when you get to the end, when you're five to 10 years away from the end, you start wondering if you're going to be able to sell the practice. And the people who had the foresight to brand themselves as a brand name and not their own name are much better off at the end because the patients just continue to come see the brand and not the person. So I think what you're doing right now is really smart because you're using both to accomplish what you need to to do to generate leads and be known in that market. Well, we definitely looked hard into that at the beginning. I think one of the hardest 
decisions we ever made in the startup process was what were we going to name our practice, right? Because there were two of us. We were starting a practice from scratch. So it wasn't going to be Richardson facial plastic surgery or Kane facial plastic surgery or any sort of variation thereof. So our practice is called Texas Facial Aesthetics. So that really covers everything that we do from a surgical and non-surgical standpoint. And it gives us leeway to evolve in the future. If we want to evolve, even add a, another specialty into our practice, we could do that. And sort of gives us the flexibility to maneuver into the future, I think. Into other markets, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and satellite locations, different things like that. We sort of wanted to plan for, for all of that in the future if needed. Cannot go to Oklahoma, I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> it probably wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... One of the hottest topics that's being talked about right now is really this wave of influencers and social media personalities over-injecting, at least in many people's opinion, they're over-injecting lips and, and cheeks. And it's causing a lot of controversy in some places. So I'd like to know if you're seeing that happen in, in the Dallas market. Are people coming to you asking for what you might think would be too much filler? Or are they coming to you and asking to be corrected from too much filler? What are you seeing? It's a good question. You know, I don't typically see people coming in that are drastically overfilled. Okay. I, I do see it. But you know, I think the the main thing your your question started with sort of social media influencers and how they may look overfilled and people are wanting to come in and look overfilled like them. That's not it does happen, but it's not a big problem for me. With social media, what I get is someone holding up a, a phone in my exam chair and saying, Look at her cheek or her lip. I want to look like this. And that's a challenge because that patient doesn't look like that person on the screen, typically, okay? And they're usually not very close to that at all. And I've got a totally different canvas that I'm working with to try to work within their anatomy and the constraints of their body to get them closer to that goal and fit them into where that might work for them. But it really comes down to a big, long talk before we do anything at all about what I think we can and cannot do to approach that goal within the confines of their anatomy. So that's what I typically see from influence or influencers or um, not necessarily the social media stars of the world, the Kim Kardashians and things, but also the doctors. I mean, you see, you know, they're very well-known Instagram injectors and plastic surgeons and Snapchat and all the different channels. And you know, I have patients that come into my office that sees something that a doctor did in another market, and um, they say, "Look, look how he's doing this. Can you do this for me?" And that's, you know, from my side, that's difficult to deal with. If they, if that same patient came in and said, "I don't like this, my cheek or my lip or my nose or whatever," that's what I'm trained to do. I can fix that or I can help that. I am not trained to be another doctor and do things the way they do it. So it's sort of a challenge sometimes. That is an unintended side effect I have not heard yet. Have you had anyone proposition you, like, if you give me this treatment for free, I'll put you on my Instagram? Absolutely. That's happening? How often is that happening? Not commonly. 
I anticipate it may happen more frequently uh, in the future, both as my practice continues to grow more and as social media channels continue to grow and evolve. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the bigger epidemic than the overfilling is the aspiring influencers trying to negotiate for things right. in exchange for visibility. Right. It can be a difficult conversation. Some of these people may have a large net of influence and some of them may not, but their perspective might be different than your perspective. And sometimes that's a difficult conversation to have. Although we deal with those types of situations all the time, as far as somebody asks for a discount for whatever reason it may be, uh, on whatever service it may be. Look, I have patients and clients that ask for you know ten percent off their sunscreen. Okay, so you know uh, it can. <laughs> I see it in a lot of different ways, on an almost weekly basis. What do you think is the cause of the the sort of increasing level of? overfilling that we're seeing? You know, I don't know that it's necessarily something new, uh, more than it is something that's more visible. I think there have been patients with, for a variety of reasons, who sort of uh, end up kind of going overboard with some of the things that we do. Doctors too, it's not just the patient, it's the doctor. But it's very visible now, and it wasn't necessarily quite so visible a decade ago or two or three decades ago. And you would see the the person on TV or you know in the paper or something like that. But now it's really easy to see what every celebrity is wearing on the streets of LA or whatever it may be. And the same thing goes for their face and how it looks, or their body and how it looks. And um, you know, I think just that visibility is sort of bringing more attention to it. I see patients that, you know, are overfilled, but sort of along those same lines is the patient who wants me to do something, whether it's filler or surgery or whatever it may be, that I don't think is reasonable or appropriate. Because my I have to sort of live with myself and what I do too. And um, if a patient's asking me to do something that I think won't look good, uh, whether it's now or 10 years from now, or that I wouldn't be proud to show off to my colleagues or other patients, then there's sort of two different ways to go about that. One is just flatly saying, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Or some strategy that I use occasionally is sort of redirect, which I think can be effective. So, And I think that works well with the, uh, the filler patient. So the patient who um, you know, is wanting me to overdo the lips, right? Say, no, I think the lips look fine. But if you're really interested in doing something, you might consider the lines around the mouth or something like that. Okay. And um, now I don't know if that lasts forever, if that works forever, but that can be sort of an effective uh, strategy. Distract them with shiny things. <laughs> I like it. I like yeah, it. Yeah. On this podcast, we ask everyone one question at the end, which is the same every time, which is what is your unique superpower? Ooh, that's a tough one. I think um, honesty and integrity, those, those are my sort of backbones that I rely on. I try to treat everyone like they're a member of my own family. And if you do that and you do that honestly and you do what you would do, whether you were being filmed for a national broadcast or nobody's watching you in your operating room, I think you're going to be successful in the end because... You're going to get good results and you're going to do it in an honest, ethical way. 
And um, I would say that's probably you know what I pride myself on the most and what I sort of go back to and try to rely on when good times and bad times, difficult times can occur. Thanks for sharing your stories with us today. We really appreciate it. And that it'll be fun to watch your growth and hope that Real Self can continue to support you through that. Thanks. And if there's ever anything that we can do, we love your feedback. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.